This is Heather Vickery with the Brave Files podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 162, The People vs. Larry Flint Movie Review. Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. If you want to reach out to us, you'll find us on social media on Twitter, at C. McBrien for me, and at Amaron underscore DM for Derek. PopGoesYourWorld.com is our website. Find all of our contact information on there. And Derek and I actually have something we'd like to, to ask you this week. If you could leave a review for the podcast, uh, wherever you download and listen, whether it's on Spotify or iTunes or iHeartRadio, wherever that is, we would certainly appreciate that. And Derek, uh, I want to say hello and I'm wondering how you are. Tell us how you are. And of course, what's new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hello, Chris. I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. And in the world of pop culture, I have had an opportunity to do a little bit of binging. I had a chance to go back and I have watched in the last week, season one and season two of The Crown on Netflix. Mm, Is it good? I've heard of it. I haven't watched it, but... Well, I I have a lot of friends who are very into this show. Uh, season four just dropped a couple of weeks ago, so it's been on the top of everybody's uh, lists. And if you go on to Netflix now, it's probably showing The Crown season four is in the top ten. And I finally decided to break down and watch it. It, it won a ton of awards. Uh, it's big, it's received a ton of great reviews. Uh, and my wife was sort of telling me about it as she's been watching it over the years. So I thought, you know what? I wanted something that I knew I could sit down, watch a bunch of episodes, have a reasonable expectation that they're going to be decent. And I knew a ton of the people that were in the cast and I liked most of them. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to give this a try. And uh, yeah, it was quite good. And because I don't really know very much about the British monarchy, it was all pretty much all new to me. I knew the broad strokes, but um, it was interesting after watching some of the episodes to go to Wikipedia and to look some of this stuff up on online and see how accurate what their show what they depict in the show is to what happened in real life obviously it's not 100 percent perfect but a lot of it is is pretty accurate and it's it, it serves as a good way to provide education in the form of entertainment and so yeah i'm uh, a couple episodes into season three i should have that finished by the end of the week and uh, and then i can jump into season four like everybody else and i can join the online debate and discussion but yeah that's that's sort of been my consumption this week is uh, the crown seasons one and two nice i took you up on your offer a couple weeks ago you were mentioning about the queen Gambit and you said oh it's really good so I started watching it and we just finished it this week uh, it was quite good I, I thank you very much for the recommendation uh, normally I don't watch anything that's new unless somebody tells me that you know I should watch it uh, heaven forbid I should discover anything new on my own you know that's not gonna happen but it was quite good I, th- I thought it was good but I will say I don't think it was excellent um, it was a little bit flawed for me um, for me the way that it handled addiction. I don't want to give away too much, but yeah. I just felt that 
it, it needed more than just like part of one episode to really delve into those addiction issues. Um, but other than that, I thought it was quite good. And the, uh, the as I mentioned last week, the way that it has uh, just created a chess craze, you know, across North America, it's just amazing. It's just incredible. But yeah, no, I, and like I said previously, I, I've really enjoyed it and um, I would certainly recommend it to most people. It, it is a little slow. I think I think it does suffer a little bit from pacing, but I think that's deliberate in the way they wanted to tell the story. And if you're looking for a fast paced, shoot 'em up action, mile a minute, special effects, th- this isn't for you. You're not going to want, you're not going to enjoy this. This is uh, your very traditional, long, slow, boring drama, but it, it has payoff. I, I thought the performances were great. I, and I, I was fascinated by the whole chess side of it as well. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. And I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm a little bit of a sort of a passive chess fan. Like I've played, you know, since I was a kid, but I'm not very good at it. I always thought I was okay, but I didn't realize how intricate the game of chess is. Like, there, there's there's parts of the again I don't want to give away too much but there's parts of it where she's reading all these books like people have written books about there's a book called Modern Chess Openings it's a whole book just on your opening move yeah <laughs> who knew like chess could be so elaborate but uh, well just think of how how many years chess the game has been around like yeah. it goes back you know hundreds if not thousands of years and 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 across multiple cultures too so mm-hmm. there there's a lot of history there and it's like anything else uh you know you learn from those who have come before you and since there have been so many people that have come before us that have played and mastered the game of chess there's a lot to learn absolutely so, uh, yeah it's just I, I never knew it was that elaborate of a game. I guess I thought it was a bit more simple than that. But uh, what can I say? I'm lame. And I'm also I'm old. And I'm a dad. So here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, why is Peter Pan always flying? Um, I, I don't know. Because he never lands. Oh boy, yeah. Uh, you know, dad jokes are supposed to be lame by their very nature, but uh, I, I, they need to reach a certain minimum standard of lameness. And I, I feel the last couple of weeks you have not really hit that lame benchmark. So uh, my my homework for you is for next time the lame dad joke has to be a little more lame and a little less just dumb. <laughs> But but it's a Peter Pan joke. You gotta love that joke because it never grows old. Oh boy! It never grows old, Carl. Never. Yeah, I guess I, I walked into that one, didn't I? You know, Williams, the adventure begins. I'm glad it's called the adventure begins. We're clearly gonna get more adventures. It was an optimistically titled movie. It's perfect if you are an 11 year old boy with a big old healthy dose of nostalgia. Oh, rescue me, male hero! I'm in danger. Oh, this is just like the Matrix, only. Sh- I felt bad for all the people that were attached to this movie. I'm 50, and I sure hope I don't look anything like Wilford Brimley in Cocoon. Oh my god, I got 90 more minutes of this. <laughs> that's that's such a good drop. I love that drop. <laughs> I'd laugh at listening to it. Okay, so it was over to you this week, and you had to nominate a film. You went with The People versus Larry Flint. 1996, it was uh, directed by Milos Forman, and uh, Oliver Stone produced it. 
you, you, so we've been saying lately we want to tie our two films together when we pair them up and they should have similarities so I, I flip things over to you this week to, to nominate a film it'll be up to me at the end of the show to nominate a film that's related to this in some way but you had free reign you had carte blanche you could have picked any movie in the whole world that you wanted to start us off without getting in too much of a deep dive but why this movie so uh, yes you're right i had carte blanche i could have picked anything i wanted and like uh like so many of us i tend to procrastinate when it comes time to do my homework and about 10 minutes before we were going to record last week i realized i needed to pick a movie and i was scrambling through my personal collection and i i managed to find three or four dvds to sort of narrow it down to so we were getting something from the 90s just because most of my dvds are from the late 90s and um so i landed on the people versus larry flint which honestly I, I'd been considering doing uh, nominating it for a review for a while and I, I think as I mentioned at the end of the last episode the movie is about at its core the movie is about censor- censorship and free speech and the, the fight for free speech in America which by extent you know a lot of the same uh, lessons learned can certainly be carried forward into other cultures and other societies around the world but the idea of um, the idea of free speech that you know, if if it's going to truly be free, you have to give people the opportunity to say things that perhaps you don't want to hear or that you disagree with, because if they have the freedom to do that, that then you have the freedom to say what you want to say. And I mean, that obviously is a very uh, simplified view of, of what they're trying to accomplish here. But I think it's an important lesson because even though the movie was made in the 90s and it's about a story that took place prominently, predominantly in the 70s and 80s, we are still at a point in North America where there are a lot of people that are fighting for various freedoms to be acknowledged and recognized, uh, not not necessarily free speech to the extent that uh, that it was fought for in the 70s and 80s, but there are other freedoms that are, are more topical and relevant today. And I felt that by looking back at this movie, we could very easily draw parallels to the the kind of struggle that various groups and various people have when they're trying to um, get acknowledgement for things that should very much be their right uh, under the, again, this is an American story, so it's their right under the U.S. Constitution. So with that sort of uh, uh, idea in mind that was partly why that was largely why I wanted to review this movie plus I, I've seen this movie a few times I remember when it came out on video I enjoyed it a lot it did very well on home video and I hadn't seen it in a while and I thought you know what I, I have a strong uh, recollection of enjoying this movie so uh, let's let's give it a watch and see how it holds up well, it was funny because at the end of our last show, we talked about this, you know, you nominated it. And I had mentioned that I, I was, I don't want to say I'm not a big fan of Woody Harrelson. Uh, and we'll get into his performance in a bit. We'll, we'll really dive into it. But I was com- I came into this movie uh, this week not expecting a whole lot. And like, I, I, I didn't really have high hopes for it. I just didn't think it was going to be very good. Boy, was I ever disappointed. This movie was really good. Really, I'm, glad. Really I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, it was good. But it's funny that I when, I when I mentioned the Queen's Gambit at the top, I had mentioned that that was good, but it wasn't great because it's flawed. This is very similar. It's it's It was good. Really, really good. But it, it just falls short of being 
excellent and in, in, in getting over like to the next level because it is flawed. And again, we'll get into some details, but this film was a lot better than I thought it would be. But the thing is, it's not for the faint of heart. No, <laughs> and, not at all. And let me tell you, but before we dive right into things, I have a, a bit of a funny story. So, you know how my wife always makes comments about the movies that we watch here on the podcast? Well, yes. Yes. I I told her we were going to be reviewing The People versus Larry Flynn. And she's like, oh, I've got a great story about that movie. So when she was about 18 years old, the movie came out on video. And her and her boyfriend at the time, it wasn't me, uh, they were at her grandparents' place, like for a visit. And her grandparents were like, oh, we thought we would rent a movie tonight and we could all watch it. We rented oh this boy. movie with Woody Harrelson from Cheers. <laughs> And it was this. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, not one you want to watch with Ooh. your grandparents. I couldn't imagine watching this with my grandparents, uh, let alone my wife's grandparents. They are about as prudish as they come. Uh, so apparently they turned the movie off after about two minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my wife hadn't seen this movie uh, before this week either, it turned out. so. Okay. Um, but I, before we dive right into the movie, I just want to point out, how ironic it is that the movie features the king of smut himself, Larry Flint, and the two righteous men that contest him in the movie uh, are Charles Keating and Jerry Falwell. And Charles Keating ended up being at the heart of the savings and loan scandal of the 80s. And Jerry Falwell's son, Jerry Falwell Jr., has proven to be um, of questionable moral character himself, we'll say. So it's so funny because society kind of paints Larry Flint as the morally bereft one. And the thing is, he makes no bones about who he is or what he stands for. Right. Meanwhile, there's these right-wing, holier-than-thou types that are just corrupt as hell. They just hide it a lot better, you know, behind this veil of righteousness. So I just I thought that was such an interesting thing. And it's a true story, obviously, you know. Um, like I mentioned, it's uh, directed by Milos Forman. And, you know, he's, he is one hell of a director, don't you think? Absolutely. His body of work is fantastic. I know that it, it's not, you and Yancey... It's not extensive, uh, right? Like, he hasn't directed yeah. a million films or anything, but he just... Oh, man, is he good. But I was thinking about this uh, uh, the other day. Often, when, like, whenever we do a new movie uh, or a movie review, I like to sort of think back to what movies have we done already and how how much overlap is there so for example it's like have we already done other movies by this director have we done other movies that star this same actor uh, you know have we done other movies written by this same person that kind of thing and so af when I was watching this movie earlier this week and I was sort of thinking back I'm like okay I know you and Yancey did one flew over the cuckoo's nest yes which is uh, I think probably the one that Milos Forman is is best known for the one that probably he got the most uh, kudos for mm -hmm. he won an Oscar for that right one yep. flew over the cuckoo's he nest he did yes yeah and uh, but he's done a, a number of other very notable very uh, famous movies but um, you know so that was that sort of came to mind and then I started thinking I'm like okay well we got the people versus Larry Flint which is basically a biopic about Larry Flint and then I'm like and he also did then right after this Milos Forman did Man on the Moon which is about uh, Andy Kaufman again, mm -hmm. so again which is also a great movie um, again another biopic and then I'm like well what else he done well he did Amadeus in the 80s again, another biopic I'm like 
I gotta look more at this guy's IMDb. He really seems to like be able to find an interesting person and then just tell their story. So uh, we may have to go back and, and, and check out one of those two down the road. Well, just to build on what you're saying, Milos Forman has really made a name for himself by making movies about misfits. Mm-hmm. You know, Larry yeah, Flint sure. in this one. You mentioned uh, Man on the Moon, um, Randall P. McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Amadeus. I, I would argue that this isn't his best film. I would argue it's Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, uh, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't argue about that. This one's good, but yeah, yeah. Cuckoo's Nest is his crowning achievement. There's no, no he, question. Yeah, he was nominated for an Academy Award uh, uh, for Best Director for all three. Um, for, for Amadeus and Cuckoo's Nest in this. He won for Cuckoo's Nest. He won for Amadeus. He lost in 96 uh, to Anthony Minghella for The English Patient. But I would say he does get the best performance of Woody Harrelson's career, don't you think? Oh, without without question. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I... mean, I. Yeah, sorry, we ahead. were talking a little bit about this last week. Mm-hmm. I... I I'm not a huge fan of the show Cheers. Uh, again, I felt it was it was sort of was big a little before I was old enough to understand it. It's and a good it's show. Not, it's a good. Yeah, show. and but it's not something that I've really been able to go back to. Like, it, mm-hmm. and uh, but I, I did enjoy Woody Harrelson's performance on Cheers when I did watch it. He's appeared in a ton of movies since then. Um, you know, some of them he's he's tried to give a great performance, like a serious performance, sometimes with you know more success than others. He's done some comedies. He's done some action movies. He's done some stoner movies. It's like he's sort of all over the map. I think with this one, this was sort of when his star was still rising and you've got this great script and this great director and he they managed to get this great performance out of him. So he's clearly capable and he was, you know, rewarded with all sorts of accolades for uh, for his performance. And I think that sort of opened doors for him and then it let him do whatever he wanted to do. And unfortunately, he, I don't think he was ever able to match the uh the, the success that he had with this as far as the, you know, quote, master of the craft perspective. I, I will say I liked Woody Harrelson in Cheers. Like, I think he was in a tough spot because he was replacing Nicholas Colasanto, coach. Yeah. But I never really thought of him as a particularly talented actor. I, I remember I saw him in Natural Born Killers and I hated that movie. I turned it off after maybe 20 minutes. And then my wife had me watch a movie. Oh, it was a couple years ago. And it was with Will Smith. I think it was called Seven Pounds, if I remember correctly. And the movie was awful. And Woody Harrelson was just ridiculously bad in it. It it reminded me of a really, really bad SNL sketch. Every time he came on the screen, like, man, it was bad. So coming into this movie, like I say, I didn't really think much of his acting ability, but I got to say he was really, really good in this movie. Uh, Like I mentioned, it was the best performance of his career. But even saying that, he's overshadowed, not by one, but by two of his co-stars. Courtney Love and Edward Norton both give incredible performances, like Oscar-worthy performances. And funny enough, Woody Harrelson was nominated for his role in this movie, but both of them were not. Edward Norton was nominated the same year, but it was for his performance in Primal Fear. He was so good in Primal Fear. Have you seen Primal Fear? I have not, no. Oh, we're going to watch that in a future one then. It is fantastic. I'm sure he's good in it, but my God, he's good in this movie. And I remember we did an episode once on Oscar snubs, and... You know, I'd like to add to my list from that episode because for me, both Courtney Love and Edward Norton should have been nominated for Academy Awards for this movie. Do you do you agree? 
I, I would have no bones with that. I mean, Edward Norton, I, he's, he's definitely one of my, one of my Hollywood boyfriends. I'll go and see anything he's in. He, he hits it out of the park every time. And, uh, Courtney Love, surprisingly. Yeah. Like this is, this is definitely a, a, a very high point in her career, especially for a performer. I mean, obviously she's best known as being a musician and probably even more well known for being the wife of Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. But, um, I mean, she was nominated, recognized and nominated for a Golden Globe, uh, for this performance. Uh, you know, obviously the Golden Globes and the and the Oscars not necessarily on the same field, but certainly two of the bigger, more prestigious performing awards uh, that are handed out and and the nominations are provided for. So I think that certainly gave her a certain amount of credibility. It's unfortunate that you know, if much th- I mean, for both her and for Woody Harrelson, I don't think either of them ever hit this level again. Um, Woody obviously had more chances at it, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think for Courtney Love, there might've been other, I know there was a lot of drugs in her, in her real life that, Mm -hmm. that played into some of her personal problems. So that's probably a contributing factor, but yeah. And I, I think it goes though to the testament of, uh, the material that they had in front of them, which like you said, Oliver Stone and the director that they had, you know, directing them with Milos Foreman. Like you, you have a plus listers behind the scenes, pulling the strings and, and driving these performers to give their best. And, and it clearly shows. Well, even if you look at, you know, who else was nominated that year, if you look at best supporting actress, uh, Juliette Binoche won for the English patient. Yeah. The English patient cleaned up that year, yeah. but Joan Allen was nominated for the crucible. Lauren Bacall for the mirror has two faces. Barbara Hershey in The Portrait of a Lady and Marianne Jean-Baptiste for Secrets and Lies. You're telling me Courtney Love wasn't better than any of them? Like, if I had a vote, I would vote for Courtney Love over any of these. And Best Supporting Actor, Cuba Gooding Jr. for Jerry Maguire. So show he, me the money. Yeah, he runs around and yells, show me the money and wins an Oscar. And what Edward Norton does, especially, and we'll get to it in that last scene with the Supreme Court. My goodness, it's like, it's like a master class in acting. Oh, Jesus. Anyway, so let's, let's dive into this movie and just kind of break it right apart. So the movie opens up with, uh, with Larry as a young boy and he's selling moonshine in Kentucky in 1952. So we see right away, he comes from a rough background, but he also, he, he kind of had to exploit people's vices right from the get-go, you know, in order to be successful and get through life. And then he carries that over into his adult years because it transitions to him as a grown man where he's running this sleazy strip club and the club's losing money. So he's like, well, you know, he's a businessman, right? What am I going to do? I know. I'll, I'll come up with a newsletter to try and promote it. And that turns out to be the genesis of, of Hustler magazine, right? Mm. Yeah. And then he meets Althea and this young stripper. And that's Courtney Love, obviously. And the thing that got me right away with her, she looks so different. Like, I always think of her from the celebrity roast of Pamela Anderson. You ever see that? I'm sure I have, but I don't remember it. Oh, she was in that. She just looked like a burnt out heroin addict. Well, she probably was, I guess. I was going to say, that may not be far from the truth, to be honest with you. And in the beginning of this movie, she looks so different. Like, and then, you know, as the movie goes on, we see the Courtney Love that, you know, I'm used to seeing. But at the beginning of the movie, she looks like a different person. And, And to me, that's one of the things that makes her performance so good. She basically undergoes a complete transformation during this film. Like, yeah. 
I think her performance might be the thing that resonates the most with me from this movie. Like she was that good. And it's just, she's not just a rock star acting in a movie. She is a full blown talented actress here. Don't you think? I do. Yeah. I agree with all of that. Yeah. God, she was good. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I mean, you know, it certainly helps when you like, this is the kind of movie that often does get recognized for awards because movies that, that are about real people tend to be rewarded yeah. and movies that, uh, you know, denote and, and depict real life situations tend to be rewarded. And the fact that this one takes place over the course of a decade or more, that always seems to help as well, because then you can see the characters develop. You can see the performer playing the character as a younger person, as a, like sort of the middle age, and then as an older person, not that this one necessarily goes that far, but when you see that kind of a transformation through the course of a film, if it's done right and if the makeup is good and if the performer can help sell the fact that, you know, that the, the actor in the role hasn't aged more than the 90 days it took to shoot the movie, um, it, uh, it is often rewarded with with accolades, with the nominations, with the awards. I, I mean, that's just, I think just the, uh, uh, the nature of the industry. I was gonna say a failing in the industry, but in many cases, I, I, I think it's deserving, but you know, it's, it's not surprising when movies like that, when period pieces or, or biopics or, or movies like this that are based on a real thing, get a lot of re- reward from, uh, from the, the film societies and such. And, um, yeah. So the fact that they, they, were able to do such good jobs in their performance with Edward Norton and Woody Harrelson and, and uh, Courtney Love. I think that the material, again, I'm going to re- lean back on the material. The material gives them that opportunity to show that time lag, to show that transformation over time. So, Yeah, for sure. And, and, and you're right. <clears throat> Whenever Hollywood makes movies about real people, they, it seems to be a bit of a, of a, you know, an award magnet. You know, yeah. just the way it kind of works. But uh, just one other thing that just came to mind when um, at the beginning of the movie with Courtney Love's character, her, she has a line that just just stands out. You know, she says to Larry, she says, you're not the only one to sleep with every girl in this club. And you're just like, whoa, what? <laughs> like she just makes that character pop. I'm going to come back to Edward Norton in a bit. OK, yeah. I just gonna we'll stick a pin in him. But yeah. um Larry Flint. So he brings a copy of Playboy magazine in. And I, I, it's a great scene. He asks everybody in the room about the articles. And yeah. he points out, nobody reads the articles. So yeah. he sees this market need for a magazine that focuses on the nudity and doesn't even really bother with the articles. And then he decides to take things to the next level by showing, you know, everything, you know. And then he decides to expand this club's newsletter into a monthly magazine. And it, it was just, it was the parallels were interesting because Playboy launched their first issue with nude photos of Marilyn Monroe, which she posed for, right? Right. And then Flint launches Hustler with nude photos of Jackie Onassis, which she did not pose for. <laughs> not intentionally. Yeah, some guy took him on a Greek beach or something like that. So right away, you know, he just sort of establishes himself as being somebody who is, who's going to push the envelope, let's just say, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I wanted to mention James Cromwell. He plays Charles Keating. 
he has been in a lot of really good movies. He was in Babe and The Green Mile. But to me, Revenge Mr. of the Nerds. Yes, he'll always be the dad in Revenge of the Nerds. He was Where he's credited Sk- as Jamie Cromwell. Yes, he was Mr. Skolnick, right? Remember, yeah. Louis, remember, I love when he's driving them to Adams College at the beginning and he's like, I got the old cruise control set at 35. Yeah. <laughs> just, I love that. And then another one that stood out to me, there was a lot of people in this movie that just have little cameos. James Carville. Like, I never even knew he was an actor. I, I only know him as a political consultant. Like, yeah. Notably with um, Bill Clinton in 92. Now, he also consulted with John Kerry in 2004 and Hillary Clinton when she first took the run at the Democratic nomination in 2008. But I didn't know the guy was an, guy was an actor. Who knew, right? So, Larry Flint. Um, he gets arrested for peddling obscene material and then he goes to court and the judge, I'm sure you noticed, was played by the real Larry Flint. Right. Here's my thought on this. That, to me, felt like it was a little bit contrived. What do you think? Uh, a little bit. I mean, the this is sort of, whenever they do like uh, remakes and reboots and relaunches now they always try to in some way give a little wink wink to those who came before mm-hmm. the original performers the original uh, writers directors what have you and um, in in a case like this where it's a story of a, of a real life someone you, you will often see the same idea where they're like well if the person is still alive and if the person is agreeable to the story because there are certainly times where they, they you know based on real events and the people don't want to have anything to do with it but in this case um, you know, I think they wanted to make sure they had uh, uh, Larry, the real Larry Flint's cooperation, which I, I'm sure they did. I, I know they did. And um, he was in it, right? Yeah, I mean, why why not put him in it? Uh, you know, he he clearly, from what we see from the movie, it's like he's he's a driven man, and he's he's got a huge ego, and he gets what he wants, and. Why not put him in the movie? What do you have to lose? And I think a lot of the people going to see this movie uh, either didn't know that's who it was, so it didn't mean anything to them, or if they did, they probably sort of smiled at the wink-wink of, hey, yeah, sure, why not? Throw him in the movie. He's he's only got a few lines of dialogue, and because we know the real Larry Flint, which we learned through the course of the movie by the end, is in a wheelchair and can't walk, it sort of limits the opportunities you have to put him in the movie. So the fact that you make him a judge behind a bench doesn't matter that he can't walk in real life. It doesn't affect the character playing so why not I didn't have a problem with it I thought it was a nice little tip of the hat and I guess it's kind of ironic too let's make him a judge of <laughs> course know? well you had so, to make him someone important yeah, yeah. I, I like how um, he insults the judge and gets 25 years in prison right yeah but, but I mean the charges and the sentence too it's just they're all just trumped up right so he's out in like six months and then he goes to this rally that's put on by uh, Americans for a free press which is just this dummy organization that he set up as a publicity stunt. And this scene is pretty pivotal in there the film uh, because he goes up on stage and Milos Forman shoots him from below. And there's the American flag behind him, which is reminiscent of Patton and of Citizen Kane, right? Yes. But the th- and Pleasantville when they're in the bowling alley. Oh, that's right, too. Yes, that's right. I brought that up on that, that show yep. as well. This scene really packed a punch. Because yeah, I wanted to talk about this scene. Yeah. I'm glad you brought it up. So, like, uh, he shows those images of the nude women intercut with like these images of war and the Holocaust, and then he's saying like, "What's more obscene, this or this?" And he's showing you know the the nudity and the and the war. That scene packs a punch, man. 
Yeah, and this this has always been the thing to me. Um, you know, I, I may have said this before in one of the previous podcasts. When I was younger, uh, my, my parents had a VCR and my mom used to rent videos for us all the time. And I can remember going into the video store and they would always ask like, oh, well, you know, if your parents aren't here, you can't rent anything that's not a PG rating because you're, you're a kid. And I can remember, again, it was just the local corner video shop. So I can remember my mom going in and saying to the guy, you know what, we come in here all the time and she's like, I'm fine if they rent whatever just obviously no like you know porno movies kind of thing because of you know the guy had a little back room and kids weren't allowed back in there but she's like they want to rent anything that's uh, that was in a mainstream theatrical release even if it's restricted go ahead and let them and I can remember my mom saying like she did she wasn't concerned about bad language she wasn't concerned about excessive violence and she wasn't concerned with a reasonable amount of nudity because we've talked before a lot of the movies in the 80s you get like you know teen comedy movies where the girls take off their shirts it's like okay well you know not the end of the world for you know 12 13 14 year old boys to see that and right. uh but again got us through like, the 80s yeah but she didn't want she didn't want her young children seeing like hardcore sex movies right of course and and that's all i mean that's really what this is all about right it's it's what what is deemed acceptable and what is not it's okay to show people getting shot up on tv whether it's real life on the news whether it's the footage of a real war or whether it's a movie like a you know Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, uh, Terminator shoot him up with all the special effects and the blood and the gore or you get a lot of bad language I can remember watching Beverly Hills Cop Eddie Murphy swore a lot but it was still a great movie and you know people didn't have a problem with that but if all of a sudden you know as as the the case in this one where they're talking about if it's a movie where you can see full-on frontal genitalia or there you know you can see a sex act oh my god that's obscene and it's really just an arbitrary line, right? It's, it's well, I mean, well, let's not say arbitrary, but it, it's classification where these things are okay and these things are not. Well, well, okay, well, who's making that determination? Mm-hmm. And how different are these things really? And how much, you know, you're worried, oh, well, you can't, if you show this nudity, it's gonna scar your child for life. Wait, you're telling me you show them the footage of the Holocaust that they could see on the news and the History mm-hmm. Channel and in their school, that's not gonna scar them more than watching two people having sex which is something that your children are more than likely going to do at some point in their life anyway and you know from from a certain point of view and in certain contexts you could describe it as a very beautiful and loving act not necessarily that larry flint is doing that but you know it's it's the whole point of who says this is good this is bad when ultimately it comes down to a question of of taste which is what the movie eventually comes Mm -hmm. around to in one of the court cases he says you know you you found me not guilty of libel you basically found me guilty of bad taste well bad taste isn't a crime so why am i paying a penalty for it and and again the scene sets that whole thing up yeah that scene to me the whole thing is underscored um when they're showing like nudity of like it's just like it's like girls running around nude and then there's the nudity of the Jews and the Holocaust as they're lining them all up and like that, that scene is just a gut punch like it's yeah. just oh anyway so this shop owner in Georgia uh, gets arrested because he's selling you know copies of Hustler magazine in his store so Larry gets on a plane and flies to Georgia goes behind the counter and sells the magazines and he gets arrested and the whole time there's this old guy peering in the window and to take a page out of your book Derek you always say if they show a shotgun in the first act 
someone damn well better use it before the movie's over. And that's exactly what happens here, you know, but we won't get too far ahead of ourselves. But mm-hmm. as soon as I saw that, I thought of that right away. I thought, hmm, Derek always says that. Oh, I got to make a note of this. So um, I liked how Larry offers the $1 million reward for anyone that helps catch uh, JFK's real assassin. And to me, I think that was a really smart thing for him to do because it gave him and his magazine a bit of leverage with some people because they saw this as him trying to, you know, do something positive, you know, with his with his power. Yeah. Well, and a little sort of Easter egg with that one from what I was reading uh, in the trivia is that um, the real life father of Woody Harrelson, apparently some people believe was in on the uh, Kennedy assassination, was was one of the people that helped contribute in some way to the assassination. So it was sort of this interesting little wink, wink behind the scenes. If you knew that Mm. to have him play this role of Larry Flint and to have the scenes where you see Larry Flint saying for a million bucks, if you can prove who did it, we'll pay you out. So interesting. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So now this is the part of the movie that I take exception with. And it's one of the main reasons why I say that the movie's flawed and it's the scenes with Ruth Carter Stapleton. Now, although Larry Flint did sort of take up with her in real life, you know, it was just, it was kind of an aside and it's a bit of an anomaly in this story. And I think that, you know, uh, the character of, of Ruth Carter Stapleton didn't really have a huge influence over him in the long run. And their relationship is still kind of ambiguous to this day, but Courtney Love, the scenes that she's in, in the, in with, uh, Carter, Courtney Love did not like her at all. And and she didn't like Carter's motivations. She didn't trust her. And I I just, I found that to be somewhat interesting. But overall, I I think they could have just cut out that whole part of the movie. They could have probably shaved off 30 minutes off the runtime. And it would not have had a single bit of influence on the story at all. It, It just felt really disjointed and kind of out of place to have this kind of side story in the script. Yeah, that's just my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, I didn't I didn't really know who she was. I mean, they explain in the movie who she is, but I I mean, I'd heard of Larry Flint and I had heard of Jerry Falwell and I had heard of some of these other big names, real life people that are portrayed in the in the course of the film. And but for her it's like, "Oh, she's the president's sister." Okay, that's great. Like, why are we focusing on this at all? Oh, she's, you know, this extremely religious person and all the rest of that. And I'm like, yeah okay great why are we why are we focusing on this part of the story which i think is sort of what you're saying like i was expecting that there would be um this religious epiphany from larry flint which they sort of started to delve into and then not long after that he gets shot Mm -hmm. and he denounces he's like there is no god it's like you know he he swings one way and then the other so quickly even though in the course of the film, I think a certain amount of time is supposed to have passed. I just didn't feel like it really mattered that much. And I think, I think the idea was, Oh, he's, he's on the path to redemption and people are going to start accepting him. He's accepted Jesus Christ into his soul and he's seen the light and he's become this born again, Christian. And, and Hey, that's great. If that really happened and he, he believes that and, and it was giving him what he needed out of it. Great. I'm all for anyone who takes, who, who is religious and finds peace in that. That's fantastic. 
And then through the course of the story, he suffers this great tragedy and he denounces all of this stuff and he goes back mm. to his old ways. But again, it just it happened so quickly from point A to point B that I, I didn't really feel like I'm like, OK, well, so what? Like it, it wasn't like half the movie was one thing and half the movie was the other. Like, I think the whole start mm-hmm. to finish took like 10 or 15 minutes of the runtime. I was like, yeah, th- was this necessary? Yeah, like, I mean, it really happened in his life. I mean, he took. Well, I get her, that. Yeah. But. It just wasn't germane to the story. I just no. I, I felt it was weird. But um, you sort of touched on it. He he goes back to court, and Larry's in court a lot in, in this movie. It's really him and well, it's court. called the People versus Larry yeah, exactly. Flint. It's pretty clear that this is going to take place at least somewhat in a courtroom. Yeah, I mean he's in and out of court his whole career, right? But um, the guy that we saw outside the shop in Georgia shows up with a rifle and you know, like you said, he, he shoots not, not just Larry, he shoots Edward Norton's character too. And mm-hmm. the shooting leaves Larry paralyzed from the waist down. And it's, even though it's a true story, it, it's just, it's such a metaphor for what's happening in the movie because society, like mostly the system, you know, basically paralyzes Larry Flint from the waist down. Yeah. You know, it's just such a strong metaphor for, almost like for neutering him. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. That, and that, to me, that was sort of the real, uh, the real, you know, kick in the butt, if you yeah. will. It's like, here's this guy that is all about sex and sexual prowess and pornography and, and showing genitals and, and fighting the, the, the traditional norms of, of sex and decency. And, 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 you know, it's during or not long after the sexual revolution. And then he suffers this injury. And it's like, like he says, he goes, I can't walk and I can't make love to my wife. So it's like, Suddenly he is. Yeah. Like you said, he's become he's been emasculated mm-hmm. in the sense that he his parts don't work anymore. It's like, OK. Yeah. And he, he's confined to his bed. And this is where the movie starts to take shape. Right. Because he asks um, Althea for more morphine because he's just in so much pain. Right. And she ends up taking some. And of course, next thing you know, she's hooked. And I like how Foreman shows the passage of time because he yes. uses a digital clock on yes. the screen that goes from, I think it was like from 1979 to 1983. And so they basically spend four years in a drug-induced haze. Yeah. And he comes out of it with this severe lisp, you know, and she's totally goth. Um, and, and speaking of that, like they never really touched base on, on that because... Um, Any time that you've ever seen Larry Flint interviewed or anything, you know, since like he has that lisp, it, was that because of the the drug, you know, time? I don't know. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't like, know. I've, I've never really been able to establish that, and and the movie doesn't touch base on it either, right? Yeah, I mean, it. it I just assumed it was a side effect of of the uh, the overabundance of drug use. Yeah, but that's, that's kind again, of again, it wasn't. Yeah. If it was important to the story uh, and important to the man and important to the character, I'm sure they would have drawn more attention to it. The fact that they didn't uh, didn't really bother me. Um, yeah. But I like that after after that when you know they sort of flash forward and then it's it's a you know number of years later and um, the doctors come to him and say like, well there's this treatment that they've developed as a surgery that might actually take away your pain. So of course 
being rich, he decides he wants this because obviously he he's also in pain. So why not? And very very soon thereafter, when uh, when Althea comes to visit him in the hospital, she offers him various drugs, and he's like, "No, I don't want them. I don't need them. I was only taking them because I was in pain. I wasn't taking pain, them. To yeah. get, I wasn't taking them to get high. I mean, that was so, obviously a nice little side effect. But uh, you know, I, I I assume in real life things maybe weren't that clear cut. I don't think. And she even brings this up. She's like, "You went from being." addicted to these drugs yesterday you have an operation and suddenly you're no longer addicted uh, that i think was a little bit of a of a poetic license for purposes of the storytelling i mean it worked i mm-hmm. I, I i you know i didn't necessarily believe that's what really happened but i felt that it certainly helped me understand the story a little better and the fact that well now that he's off the drug he's off the drugs because he's not in pain and now that he's not on the drugs he can think more clearly and start to take back his life which you mm-hmm. you see him do yeah because so. she goes the other way you know she gets well that's it she wasn't right taking away. it for pain yeah. yeah she wasn't taking it for pain she was taking it to for escape right like mm-hmm. her husband is in tremendous amount of pain right. and he's been paralyzed she's she's probably suffering from depression and and numerous other things mm-hmm. and uses the drugs to escape reality and why not uh, i mean because it's it's addictive that's why not mm-hmm. but but in her situation, I can understand why why someone would potentially do that. And yeah, when when Larry Flint gets the operation and then he's like, oh, I don't need I'm not in pain anymore. I don't need the painkillers. Well, you know, she's obviously not kicking it that that easily or that quickly. Yeah. And it turns out, unfortunately, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, her drug use ultimately leads to her death. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned before uh, some cameos and Norm MacDonald is in it. He plays mm-hmm. the um, the CBS journalist who, yeah. uh, who Larry gives the John DeLorean tape to that it shows um, John DeLorean financing that cocaine deal. I remember seeing that tape back in the 80s and um, it, it ruined DeLorean and destroyed his motor company. Um, although he did fight it in court and he got off on like entrapment. But then, then he ended up getting indicted for like defrauding investors and tax evasion and stuff. So, I mean, he was corrupt. But um, so Larry Flint gets pulled into court again, you know, because he has to explain the source of his DeLorean tape and he refuses to give it up. And I just I love the scene at his house where he's watching the three TVs. Yeah. And one of them is showing coverage of the trial. One is showing live coverage of these helicopters that are outside of his house, you know, as the feds are coming to arrest him. And the third one is showing the game show Joker's Joker's Wild, Wild. (laughs) which I thought was just great. I was laughing. And he's yelling at it. What's wrong with you? Whatever the network was. What's wrong with you? And then it finally switches over to we interrupt this program. Right. Yeah. And so, so they haul him into court and he goes in wearing the army helmet and the flak jacket. And they end up putting duct tape across his mouth and and he throws oranges at the judge. And this is all real. Like this isn't embellished for the sake of the movie. He did those things. Mm -hmm. And then the scene when Althea goes to see him in the psych ward and she tells him that she has AIDS. Yeah. And he's obviously crushed. You know, it's the love of his life. And at this point in the movie, it's regardless of what you think of Larry Flint. I think Milos Forman does a, does a pretty good job of humanizing him. Yeah, know? I agree. The bottom line is, this is a guy that's had a tough life. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's some. Of, it, it, I agree. I agree on its surface. He has definitely had a tough life. He's suffered through a lot of hardships. But at the same time, uh, some of the problems he experienced later in his life were of his own making. You yes. know, he certainly he 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 it, he says that at one point to the lawyer where he's like, you know, when Edward Orton's like, I, that's it, I quit, and he goes, you can't quit me. He goes, I'm your best client. I'm the most fun. I'm rich, <laughs> and I'm always in trouble. And it's like, yeah, such a that great sounds line. about right. It's such yeah. a great line. Oh yeah. man, and I, I seem to remember that was in the trailer for this movie this movie this let me tell you in the 90s they knew how to make a good trailer without giving away too much but giving you just enough of the good stuff to go yeah i want to watch that this is one of those movies that has an amazing trailer oh i, I i'm sure it did i don't remember seeing it but uh, um so i wanted to mention how he goes back to court again with jerry falwell because mm-hmm. Hustler Magazine published this lewd fake ad, you know, featuring Jerry Falwell, and he gets sued for $40 million. $40 million. yeah. So Larry countersues Falwell because Falwell didn't get permission when he copied the ad and sent it out to his parishioners, which was just hilarious. Um, but the guy that played Jerry Falwell, Richard Paul, I recognized him right away. He was in a TV show called Carter Country. It ran from 77 to 79. He played the mayor. And he used to always say, Roy, Roy, Roy. But to me, he'll always be best known as playing um, Dr. Bob Hallier on WKRP in Cincinnati. He w- it was the one where uh, he was the reverend. I don't know if you ever saw it. He was from Clean Up Radio Everywhere. And he wanted Mr. Carlson to stop playing rock music because of the lyrics in some of the songs. And they debate about the lyrics in John Lennon's Imagine. Do you ever remember that one? No, I, I don't really remember the the show that well. I, I Like I said, when we talked about it a little bit last week, when we were talking about Les Nesman, I remember broad strokes, but right. I don't remember very specific episodes. Well, I obviously love the show. And in this no episode, <laughs> Mr. Carlson argues that the lyrics of, of John Lennon's Imagine He's like, it just says, imagine there's no heaven. Not there is no heaven. And funny enough, that episode was inspired by the fact that the real Jerry Falwell actually targeted WKRP on his list of quote unquote inappropriate TV shows. Hmm. So the producer thought, hey, I'm going to write this into the show, right? And then funny enough, the guy, the actor that he gets to play, you know, this reverend goes on to play Jerry Falwell in this movie. I thought it was kind of cool. So then there's the scene that you alluded to where Althea dies in the hot tub. And then again, it's just crushing. Larry is watching TV and Jerry Falwell is on TV. And he's saying that people are getting AIDS because they've disobeyed God's laws. You know what? Jerry Falwell was a like that again. It's another scene that's just a gut punch. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, that was one of the things when I was watching it this time around that I, I I guess I just didn't really put two and two together when I saw it previously. That uh, it was I knew that it was um, Woody Harrelson's character is watching TV. He's just lost his wife. He's seeing Jerry Falwell on the TV and he decides that, you know what, I'm fighting back against this guy. And I guess I never really put two and two together that it was the fact that on TV Falwell was talking about AIDS Mm -hmm. and that that was the that was the catalyst that that caused uh, Larry Flint to say, like, okay, forget this. I, you know, 
I, I, that that was what pushed him to the, mm-hmm. to to that point of fighting back. And I don't know. I guess I just mm-hmm. when I saw that previously, I didn't I didn't clue in on that. And usually I'm pretty astute with these kinds of things, so I'm glad I picked it up this time. Though. Yeah. And then I love how Flint decides that's it. He's gonna fight back. He's gonna appeal this case. And the case was just he had to pay Falwell two hundred grand for emotional distress. And he's like, I'm yeah. gonna fight that. And it, it was like basically a pittance compared to the 40 million that, that the guy wanted. But like, like you mentioned at this point, it's like, it's personal for Flint. And, yeah. and, he, and the thing is, it gets bigger than that because he wants to prove a point and stand up for free speech. And, um, you know, I, I just, I, I thought it was interesting because in that court scene, when they first start, uh, Edward Norton says, if a reasonable person could not believe that Hustler Magazine describes actual facts about Jerry Falwell, you must dismiss the case. And even he says, I'm a lawyer. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I don't even yeah. know what the hell that the, 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 the judge is saying, right? And I love that all the reporters rush out of the courtroom to this bank of phones, like to call back to their news desk. It's just so dated. <laughs> It's just so dated yeah. the film. You know, we always talk about that. Like right now, if it happened today, they'd be like live tweeting it. You know, we'd oh, all yeah, know sure. right away. For sure. And I just want to uh, wrap things up. I want to talk about that final court scene where, the, where he's before the, the Supreme Court. Hang on, before we get to that, Chris, there's yep. one thing I there was one sort of just just little cutscene that happened sure. earlier in the movie when when um was one of the one of the many times when um when Larry Flynn is arrested and one of the reporters that's around at the time, it might've been even been in Georgia where he gets arrested for selling the hustler magazine, mm-hmm. um, where they ask him like, uh, you know, how does it feel to, how does it feel to be back in court again or something? And, and the response is something to the effect of how come I have to keep going to jail to protect your freedoms? Yes. And, and I think that that to me was sort of the, the real heart of the movie is, yes. and that goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning is, in order to be in order to live in a world and live in a culture and live in a society where you value free speech you have to you have to understand that the person that you maybe dislike the most and is saying things that you disagree with the most has to have the same freedom to express their points of view that you would want to express your points of view and and i love the fact that this this story this morality this this idea is wrapped around he calls himself a scum peddler like it's this pornographer who sells dirty magazines and was doing it at a time where it was very much not accepted by the majority of society and you know it's it's that thing of i will fight for your freedom to to say what you want even even if i disagree with what you have to say and and i think that that's the that's sort of the point that keeps coming back round and round with this film is you may and i think the lawyer even says at one point he goes i'm not asking you to like larry flint i'm not asking you to like hustler magazine i'm not asking you to agree with his lifestyle or anything like that but if you want to live in a free country he has to have the freedom to produce these things and say these things because they are protected by free speech laws. And he, I think he, it's even says, he even says, I don't even like yeah. his magazine. I don't even like what he does, you know, and, and, and that's it. I'm really glad you brought that up because I remember watching the movie and in that scene, I was thinking, like, is Foreman trying to say something almost is he trying to make a statement that's almost religious here because the way that the, the the dialogue was laid out was like why do i have to keep going back to jail for you and and for me there was just a, a slight religious 
tinge to that. You know, like yeah. somebody having to, you know, I don't want to say die for your sins. You know, it wasn't that far. No, but, but I, it, I know it was mean. a religious I, kind of yes. feeling around that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, that, that, back to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I just want to bring that in. Oh, oh, so good. Over. Edward Norton. Now, I got to say, I wasn't really all that familiar with Edward Norton's work. Now, Yancey, he made me watch a movie once for this podcast called Rounders. Yep. It, was with, it was with your boyfriend, Matt Damon. Matt yep. Damon. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Rounders. It's one of my favorites. And I was dis- well, I was disappointed, but not surprised to, when you said you didn't enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. And when I was doing, again, when I was doing homework for this and I went, have you done a Milos Forman film before? Yes. Have you done an Edward Norton film before? Yes, Rounders. So mm-hmm. anyway, back to your point. Yes, Edward Norton Rounders. You, well, you, yeah, I saw him in Rounders and I saw him in Fight Club, which I, I, I hate. I hated that movie. I, oh, I'm sorry, sorry to say. You're, you're just so wrong on so many levels. <laughs> I, I knew you were Have you seen jump. American History X? No. I heard he was Whoa. good in that. but uh, So good for that. I think he was nominated for an Oscar for that. Yeah. Now, Fight Club, I didn't like. I just, oh, I did not like that movie. So so coming into this movie, I guess I, I kind of thought of Edward Norton the same way I thought about Woody Harrelson. You know, like I didn't really think much of his acting chops. And, and throughout the movie, he's he's okay, he's good. But the final court scene, my God, Edward Norton's monologue that he gives is unreal. To me, that was like a master class in acting because he uses humor, he uses pathos, he uses logic, and he never once comes across as like a stodgy lawyer. He basically comes across, like you mentioned, as appealing for freedom of speech, you know, mm-hmm. and he does it by demonstrating the power of speech. It's just it's an amazing performance. Like, I, how the hell did he not get an Oscar nomination for this role? It's just beyond me. I just oh, I just can't. understand. Well, it's like you said, the same year he was nominated for Primal Fear, yeah. which he was exceptionally good in in that. And he was in the movie Primal Fear a lot more than he was in this one. Um so again, I think I think his publicists and the the distribution companies probably went well. We don't want him to compete against himself. Let's uh, let's pick one, and they went with Primal Fear as the one they uh, they chose to to run him for. So I mean, here I'm just checking his, his history. He was nominated three times for uh, Academy Award: Best Supporting Actor for Primal Fear in '96, right? Best Lead Actor for American History X, which right. we just talked about 1998, and then just more recently in 2015 for um, Birdman, which uh, ended up the movie itself won the Best Picture. That's right. That was the one with uh, Michael Keaton, right? Michael Keaton, yeah. Mm. So, So, end of the movie comes, and somebody asks Larry, do you have any regrets? And he says, just one. They cut to him watching a video of um, Althea. Mm -hmm. So, I assume his regret is that he couldn't save her? Is that... Yeah, I think so. Or that he, you know, he wasn't there for her. Because you think about it, if... It's what they imply is that it was her her drug use when he wasn't around that led to her contracting the AIDS virus. They don't come right out and say that. And we I I mean, the movie doesn't really lead you one way or the other. But if that is indeed the circumstances under which she contracted the disease, there's probably a certain amount of guilt that he felt that if he had been closer to her and had been a part of her life, that maybe whatever circumstances caused her illness, he might have been able to intercede and maybe she she wouldn't have have contracted it in that way at that Mm -hmm. time. 
you know, given her lifestyle, uh, there's probably a pretty strong chance that there would have been some complication from drug use that might have eventually led to her death. But we'll we'll never know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I got to think that's what that's where that's going is, yeah, is that he either either the regret that he couldn't save her or just the regret that she wasn't still there in this moment when, to share this victory. Right. Because the victory was they won the case. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't want to overstate this too much, but in winning the case, you could argue that they changed the course of American history. Like it, yeah. it, it kind of seems like hyperbole, but it's not, right? No, and you got to think again of when when all of this happened. And uh, you know, this this um like the ruling came down in the mid 80s. So this would have been it was in Ronald Reagan, I think when they were went to court. Yeah. So this would have been in the towards the end of Ronald Reagan's presidency, you've had a, a very popular, exceptionally popular, very strong, very popular president, uh, Republican president. You've had a very uh, strong push for you know morals and values and and uh, let's let's forget all of that free love and drugs and all that from the 70s. Let's go back to you know core values. So you have this rise and this resurgence of a very capital C conservative culture in America. And at the same time, you've got the exact opposite of that in Larry Flint pushing this, this dirty magazine, but challenging the free rights to do it. And I I think that that really was to your point that made a huge impact that made a big change. And, and I think it opened up a lot of people's eyes to, I may not agree with what he's doing. I may not like what he's producing, but I like that. I live in a country where he can do that because if he can do that, I can do what I want to do. Yeah. Can you imagine what the world would be like if they didn't win? Well, I think there would have been a lot more. Uh, you you would have seen it challenged more. Uh, like I think that the change would have come. It would have just required more uh, perseverance. It's like any anything else, right? If so, if there's an injustice or there's something that someone who is not being given the rights they deserve, you push, you push, you push, you push, you push. You you're going to suffer some setbacks along the way, and in some cases those setbacks can be terrible, and in some cases those setbacks can last for years or decades or centuries, depending on what it is. But eventually. Uh, you know, you get enough people uh, supporting it and recognizing that it, it should be that way. Change happens. And I just couldn't yeah. imagine what like parody and entertainment would be like, you know, if it if it went the other way. I mean, hell, half the stuff I say on this podcast, you know, would get me in trouble. Well, more trouble than it does right now. <laughs> yeah. That's but overall, well, we've already established, Chris. Mm-hmm. You you can't be fined for bad taste. <laughs> so so my dad jokes. I, I'm I'm good. I don't have to worry about that. That's all right. Um, awesome pick this week, bud. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Did I, I, your wife watch the whole movie with nah, you? No, she fell asleep after I think ten she minutes. She always does. Yeah. Um, I think you guys got to watch these movies like during the day although this is not one you want to watch during the day when your children are around so well, that's a thing we got young kids so we have to wait till they go to bed and yeah. she always go to sleep um i'm really glad that i had the chance to watch it uh, it was really really good so do you want to rate it out of 10 what do you what would you give it um i actually found that when i went back to rewatch it 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 uh, it didn't it was like i enjoyed it and i thought it was good but in my mind i had remembered enjoying it more and so if you had asked me last week before I rewatched it, what I was going to score it last mm-hmm. week, I would have said, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to give it a solid eight out of 10. But when I watched it again this week, I enjoyed it. But I think I've seen other movies 
in the last decade or you know you know it's in the 20 25 24 years since this has come out that have sort of set the bar a little higher that I think I'm going to put it probably a seven and a half, but almost between those, between a seven and a half and eight. And I think I'm going to land at a seven and a half right now. Interesting. So for the first time in the history of the podcast, I will rate your movie higher than you rated it. I will oh give it an 8.5 out of 10. Wow. Wow. It was well, good, man. It was good. Yeah. It was just, it just fell short of being excellent because it was somewhat flawed. I'm, a lot of the, the Carter stuff and things like that. But yeah. oh man, it was good. But yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. So you go, even a even a, a broken clock can be right twice a day as long as it's not digital. So here we go. This is one of those two times a day where I'm right. I got a movie that you enjoyed. Well, there you go. All right. So on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. Okay, this week we're gonna have a little bit of fun with movies about real life people. Okay. Here's I thought you were going to ask me about movie boobs, so I'm kind of glad you went a little more seriously <laughs> no. with this one. Yeah, no, I didn't want to go there. So here's how it's going to go. Uh, uh, here's what I'll, I'm going to mention a real life person's name. Okay? okay. And all you have to do is just name the movie that's associated with them. And to make it okay. even easier, I'll not only give you the real person's name, I'll also give you the name or sorry, I'll give you the year the yeah, film was say, released. Give me the year? Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll give you the year. So easy right. as pie, right? This, this On its surface, this sounds easy, but again, the easy ones tend to trip me up a little more than they should. So ah, I'm ready when you're ready. This one's easy. Okay. Aaron Brockovich in 2000. Uh, was that Aaron Brockovich? It was. Yeah, okay. that was an easy one. Okay. okay, good. Ray Charles, 2004. That was Ray. Very good. Yes. Okay. Sidney Schomburg and Dith Prawn, 1984. That was The Killing Fields. It was The Killing Fields. Congratulations. Okay. Billy Bean, 2011. Oh, I love this movie. Moneyball. See, you just, you're running away with this one. You got it. Okay. Well, biopics are sort of like documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's right up my alley. So we all know how much you love documentaries. Okay. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, 1976. All the president's men. Of course it is. All right. Um, Alan Turing, 2014. Uh, that was the imitation game. See, it's hard for me to trip you up because you like all the new stuff, too. Yeah. Okay. Spartan King Leonidas, 2006. 300. Jeez. Come on, that good. one's based on a comic book. That was a gimme. Yeah. Okay. All right. Julia Child, 2009. Oh, that was, that was with Meryl Streep as, uh, yeah, that was, was it called... Uh, it was Julia and Julia or something like that. It was, I think that's, yes, I'll give it, it was Julie and Julia. Congratulations. Okay. King George the sixth in 2006. Was that the King's speech? It was the King's speech. You are just running the board here. Okay. Thomas Edward Lawrence, 1962. That would be Lawrence of Arabia. I was really hoping I'd trip you up on that one. Oh, jeez. You're just doing so good. Okay. David Frost, 2008. 
Oh, was that uh, Frost Nixon? Yes. Oh, man, you're doing so good. Okay, another easy one. Elliot Ness, 1987. The Untouchables. Diane Fossey, 1988. Gorillas in the Mist. <laughs> you, you didn't think I was going to get that one, did you? No, I just, you're running the board. This Saw is that one in the theater. Oh, good. Howard Hughes, 2004. The Aviator. This is so good. All right. Billy the Kid, 1988. Ooh. Uh, hmm. Wow. I'm going to take a guess here and say Young Guns. Yes, you got it. Good for you. Thanks. All right. Moses, 1956. Like from the Bible, Moses? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Moses. Moses supposes that, no, not that Moses. No, made that singing uh, in the rain. Is it, uh, um, is it the Ten Commandments? Oh, I was really hoping you were going to say the greatest story ever told. Jeez. All right. Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, 1967. Uh, was it just called Bonnie and Clyde? <laughs> just running it. Loretta Lynn, 1980. Coal Miner's Daughter. Man. Joan Crawford, 1981. Joan Cro- I don't know who Joan Crawford is. I don't, I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. That, it was Mummy Dearest. Mummy sure. Dearest. Oh. Who was Joan Crawford? She was an actress, like back in the 50s. Oh, okay. If you it say so. True story about her. She used to like, beat up her kid or something. Okay. And finally, the worst movie ever made in the history of film. John Belushi, 1989. John Belushi. I thought you were, when you said worst movie ever made, I'm like, oh, this is going to be Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> no. Nope. Because uh, that's about it. It's about uh, okay, real Okay. Sorry. John Belushi, yeah. 1989? Mm-hmm. Wasn't he already dead by then? Yes. It's a movie about him, though. Huh. I have no idea. Ooh, you lost the last two. It was Wired. Never heard of it. Based on Bob Woodward's equally horrendous book of the same name. It started Michael Chiklis. Oh, God, the movie was freaking awful. Ne- awful never heard of awful. it. Awful. I've never, heard of, those last the never heard of those movies, so. Oh. I was doing so good, too. And then you threw yeah. in a couple of crappers at Mommy the end there. Dearest, I thought you would get for sure. Never heard of it. I thought you might get. Never um, heard of it. Hey, I, I, I was noting though. For yep. I would say more than half of those movies that you you listed, the performer, someone in the movie who played a real life person, either got nominated for an Oscar or yeah. won an Oscar. Yeah, like Again, a lot of them. Going back to your point that the Academy just loves movies that are based on real life people. They just love it, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I mentioned before we, we we're trying to sort of tie our movie picks into one another. And you went with a biopic about a morally questionable real-life person. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to do the same thing. Derek, we're going to go back to 1980, okay? And we're going to watch one of Martin Scorsese's greatest films. The biopic, 
about real-life boxer Jake LaMotta. Yes, we're going to come back next week and we're going to review Raging Bull. Are you up for it? I am. Oh, it's good. Have you ever seen the movie before? I saw it once when I was working at the video store mm-hmm. and I was going through my Martin Scorsese phase where we rented everything he had ever done. That's the only time I've ever seen the movie. I um, honestly don't remember it that well. I just remember thinking it wasn't one of his greatest when you're watching 10 of them in a row. Right. Oh, well, we'll, we'll have see. To come back. I'll go yep. back. It's been yep. a long time. Yeah, we'll have to take a look at that. If you want to reach out to us on Twitter, as I mentioned at the top of the show, at Amaron underscore DM for Derek, at C McBrien is me, and our website is popcosierworld.com, and you'll get our email addresses on there. And- reach out to us and send us an email and like we mentioned at the top of the show if you could take a minute and review the podcast wherever you download and listen that would be great until next week this is chris mcbrien for Derek myers saying thanks for listening to pop goes your world the pop culture podcast for the generations For listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.